I'm Tara Lake, and this is The Tara Lake Show. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode. Today, I'm honored to share with you my December 2020 interview with the inspiring and immensely talented Kentucky-based artist T.D. Anderson. We discussed Anderson's poignant two-panel painting, Pieta, Woman, Behold Your Son, Behold Your Mother, which together with her sermonic essays, explore the courage and grief of Mamie Till Mobley. Anderson's painting can be viewed at tdandersonart.com, which is linked in the show notes. I'm your host, Tara Lake, bringing you a special conversation with artist T.D. Anderson, whose two-panel painting, Pieta, Woman Behold Your Son, Behold Your Mother, features Mamie Till Mobley and speaks powerfully to our current conversations on racial justice. Mamie Till Mobley was the mother of Emmett Till, an African-American Chicago teenager who was lynched in Money, Mississippi in August 1955 at the age of 14. T.D. Anderson is based in Louisville, Kentucky, where Brianna Taylor, a 26-year-old African-American emergency room technician at the University of Louisville Health, was killed by plainclothes police officers in her home as she slept in March 2020. Pieta, Woman Behold Your Son, Behold Your Mother, can be viewed at www.tdandersonart.com. T.D. Anderson, an artist, reverend, and teaching elder for the Presbyterian Church USA, is here to speak with us about a beautiful two-panel series that she has offered us in such a pivotal and critical time. Uh, And it's called Pieta, Woman, Behold Your Son, Behold Your Mother. T.D. Anderson, how are you today? Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm pretty good today. Good, good. And I I have to tell you, I saw, I had an opportunity to see your artwork um, because in several networks that I frequent, uh, there was a great deal of buzz and discussion about your work. And I couldn't believe I hadn't come across you before. And I thought that our listeners here especially here in Philadelphia, who have been so active in the racial and social justice movements that have been so much a part of our world uh, in 2020, that our discussions around um, the senseless loss of of too many African-American men and women this year, that you gave us at once a beautiful history lesson, um, but also a, a moment to reflect on the very painful present. And you did so in such a poignant way. So I want to get into this right away and talk about what brought you to this work. So could you give us a little bit of background in any way that you would like in terms of what brought you to uh, present this work to us and paint this gorgeous work, Pieta, Woman Behold Your Son, Behold Your Mother? Absolutely. Um, So 2020 has been a year. Um, there is often the juxtaposition 
of the uh, COVID-19 crisis and the continuing, uh, I'll say practice at this point, of extrajudicially killing Black people in the United States, those have been positioned as dual pandemics. And my job, uh, I, I serve as denominational staff for the Presbyterian Church USA, doing racial justice, um, helping push that work uh, throughout the church. Um, and, and so I, I couldn't help but just wrestle with the fact that in the midst of a public health crisis, Black people were once again getting the short end of the stick. And as much as everything was halted by the pandemic in our lives, one thing the pandemic could not stop was George Floyd, was Breonna Taylor, was Ahmaud Arbery. Um, and in addition to everyone that we've lost either to um, uh, police shootings, extrajudicial killings, and um, coronavirus infections, we also lost uh, John, uh, John Lewis this year. Yes. And in his op-ed that he shared uh, posthumously, he talked about how for him, his George Floyd, his Breonna Taylor, his um, Rashad Brooks was Emmett Till. And that happened in 1955. And so I, um, I am a minister. I have a background in arts. My, my undergraduate degree is in art. Uh, and for me, one of the most cathartic things that I can do in the midst of grief and trauma is to create. And so I picked up paintbrushes. I, I hadn't painted for years. It, it had been quite quite some time since I had painted oh. something. And so I just started painting again and, and coming back to that discipline and coming back to that catharsis of painting. And I thought so much about Mamie Till Mobley and what she did in the aftermath of her son's lynching and how that changed everything. And yet also so much still remains the same. So I wanted, I, I, I felt like if for John Lewis, Emmett Till was his George Floyd, and yet we still have a George Floyd in 2020, somebody's not listening. Mm, so mm. I, I just, this woman went through so much to tell this story so that things could change and, and so much did change. But clearly we need the lesson again. And I just wanted to find a way to center this woman and the power in what she did. I, I felt like we needed to revisit that story. Thank you so much. And uh, it was, uh, that's really powerful what you said that we've not, it, it, someone's not been listening. Um, that despite, what's interesting is Mae Till Mobley became, I believe this, um, this, image or uh, this template for what it means to enact African-American motherhood as activism, that to, um, to raise and rear African-American children as an African-American woman by itself is a revolutionary act. Uh, but then for, for Till Mobley to make the decision to allow her son's death to become, and the, to, to allow the murder of her son, the senseless extrajudicial murder of her son to become um, 
to, to become a moment that she was willing to share with the broader African-American community, with the broader country and with the world, not only because she allowed uh, Jet Magazine to be in that space with her um, in those tender, in those difficult um, moments, but also because she continued that activism throughout her life. Can you tell us more about uh, Mamie Till Mobley as the subject of your painting and, and then also just in terms of, you tell us so much at your website, uh, tdandersonart.com. Um, but, and, and, and by the way, I have to stop here and say that one of, one of the most moving aspects of the way that you present this work to us is, um, is the, uh, is the framing those works within essays and within sermons that you write to accompany the pieces, um, at tdandersonart.com. But could you tell us more about why Mamie Till Mobley, um, and, and, and what, what it is that we need to know about her. You frame that so beautifully in, in reminding us of Congressman John Lewis's words, but what do we need to know? What do we need to know about Mamie Till Mobley and her work and her meaning for us? I've just been struck by Mrs. Till Mobley's generosity and courage in sharing just such a horrific episode in her life and the life of her family. I also feel a lot of resentment that she had to and that so many other mothers had to. This woman, I, I dove into her story. She, she has a book um, that was released after her death, her memoir, um, Death of Innocence, the story of the hate crime that changed the world. Uh, and so I read her story and fell in love with her, um, just as a mother figure, as a mother of the community, as a Black woman, listening to how she came into her own and all of the stuff she had to go through to get this boy into the world, right? Like he was born breech. Um, he, his umbilical cord was wrapped in such a way that it threatened his ability to walk in the future. The, the doctors thought that he wouldn't walk. He was able to walk. He was able to overcome so much. He contracted polio at a young age and he survived it, but it gave him, as you know, a stutter, a speech, mm -hmm. and, a speech impediment. And she coached him through that. She came up. And, and she was she wasn't formally educated in education until later, until after mm -hmm. his death. But she had the wherewithal to come up with canceling strategies to help her son manage the stutter that polio had left him with. He had become a protector for her. He had um, seen her through a really abusive marriage mm -hmm. and was very much his mother's protector and provider. And this is a young man who I know she had to go through so much in life. I mean, I'm a mother too. I'm a mother of a little black girl and, and there's a lot we have to navigate in our parenting. And she went through so much to make sure that he would become a, a, an upstanding member of the community and then had that taken away. Mm -hmm. And this is a woman who all her life played by the rules and did everything that she was told she should do. And she broke all of those rules. Once her, once, once the world broke its social contract with her, she broke the contract with it. Mm. 
she said, I'm not playing nice anymore. I mean, she, these are not, of course, her words, but these were her actions. Everything changed for her in that moment. She talks about feeling this energy transfer from her mother, who had been the rock of the family and who had been um, the strong one that kept everybody in line. And so then that had to be her. She had to keep everybody in line. She had to tell everybody exactly what was going to happen. She had to tell um, A.A. Rayner, the funeral home, no, open casket, don't work on him. Send him to this church. He, she didn't consult with the, with the pastors, which as a pastor sort of like made my heart beat. <laughs> but I understand it. And, and, and I would hope that I would have the sort of um, wherewithal to understand what was happening in that moment um, to go with that. Hmm. But this is a woman who stopped seeking permission. And in that, in that fraught freedom hmm. that she came into in that moment, she got the world's attention. There's something incredibly powerful about that to me. And so I was just in love with her and I wanted to center her and tell her story. That's so important. And I, um, I, I want to um, correct something that I said a moment ago. It wasn't an extrajudicial killing. This was a hate crime. There wasn't right. a, um, Emmett Till did not commit a crime. Right. Um, he was murdered. Um, uh, he was murdered because of an, an interest among people to, um, to keep uh, this shining, brilliant young boy from Chicago and, uh, the, the symbol of his presence in this, in this small Mississippi town, they, they wanted to erase that and eradicate that. Um, it was, it's a hate crime. So um, I apologize for having misspoken. Um, and I thank you so much too, for, for helping us to understand the importance of Mamie Till Mobley's work into the 21st century, by the way, that she found ways to, to share her, her pain and her anguish with the community and that she also found ways um, to document her experience and that she also went on to become a, um, an educator who touched so many young lives um, that she was able to turn the pain of having lost her own child into an opportunity to be a beacon, not just in her family, but in the broader community as an educator. I wanna talk about the works themselves. And I really wanted to spend some time with them uh, because they were—they are at once um, compelling and beautiful. There's something about your technique that is at once journalistic and also surreal, uh, and in um, uh, surreal and in and in its storytelling. But then it also it has a just it has a way of transporting us into the moment. Um, you do that so beautifully with both these pieces. And um, I want you to tell us more about the pieces themselves, more about your engagement with, um, with, the, with the jet photography of, um, of these moments. Um, could you tell us more about that? Wow. And also, I'm really humbled <laughs> by your commentary on the pieces. Um, so this piece is in the style of a pieta, which is a religious motif in art. Um, 
mainly European art, Renaissance era art, uh, that depicts the pain of the Virgin Mary, or she wasn't virgin by that time, but Mother Mary, as she embraced the body of her slain son, Jesus, after he's been crucified. Um, it, it's called the piety or the pity. That I mean, that's literally what it means. And um, I talk about how this whole year has felt like a Good Friday experience. It's felt like that. And there's a portion in John's gospel where Jesus um, calls out to his mother and says, woman, behold your son. And, you know, she, it, it, there's not, not really any, any indication who he, who he's talking about when he says your son. She's probably thinking he's, she, that he's speaking of himself. And so what does it mean to look at, at your dying child as they are unjustly dying or, or have unjustly died. And when I think about what it took from Mamie Till Mobley to go and collect her son's body, knowing what has happened to him and to deliberately look at that form and in her memoir, she talks about that process and where she had to go and, and how clinically she had to approach it just so she could stay present in the moment and how she had to start at his feet and work her way up. Like, where do you have to go to do that? And so in the, in the panel, and this is a diptych, diptychs are usually attached. They're, they're not attached, but these are two paintings that are um, to be viewed as one piece, one, one cohesive piece. Um, so in the first panel, Woman Behold Your Son, I take that Jet Magazine footage, which um, includes a lot more than what I've painted, by the way. It includes Emmett's dressed body. Um, and I, I, I I focus, I tighten in on her and try to really communicate both the gravity and the weight of that grief, but also the fact that she has to steal herself to even be there in that moment because she had so many people standing at the ready, either telling her that she shouldn't do it because you know nobody should do that or just waiting for her to collapse. So. I wanted to talk about how she steals herself. I wanted to show how she steals herself in that moment. Um, and you, you talked about the, the sort of um, surrealistic element of the pieces in that particular panel too. There are these depictions of these um, sort of forms and they come from an interview that she gave where she talked about an encounter she had the night she learned about Emmett's fate. Um, an encounter that she understands to be a conversation with God. And um, she's arguing with God, like angry, like, why did this have to happen? And she, as she tells it, she understands that God told her, okay, I need you to understand that Emmett was my son and not yours. You, you were there to raise him. His job is done. Um, my son, and this is a Christian woman talking, my son came so that people would have a way toward eternal life. Your son came so that people would have a choice as to what kind of people they would be. Um, and again, we, we need to be presented with this choice anew because we're still choosing the wrong way. But it is interesting to me that she says that this voice told her 
I may have taken one child from you, but I'll give you thousands. So that, who are the thousands though? Are They could be, because she never had any more children biologically. Mm -hmm. So they could be the kids that she taught. They could be um, other children who met similar fates. They could be Tamir Rice. They could be Trayvon Martin. Her children could be other mothers like her, Leslie McSpadden, Sabrina Fulton, Tamika Palmer. So many people are her children. How many more children does she need in, the, in those latter categories though? Is my question. Like who are the kids and why are there so many of them? Why are there thousands? So that, and, and there's a portion of the painting where Emmett would have been depicted, but I didn't depict that. That just is, that's just white paint right there. And I talk about the social construction of whiteness that creates these um, societal, societal norms that makes allegedly whistling at a white woman a capital offense. And, and, and allows that woman's relatives to be judged, jury, and executioner. Um, and so the second panel is not from Jet Magazine, it's from Chicago Sun-Times footage where, and it, they happen in reverse chronological order. This, this piece is actually when she greets the body as it comes to the train station and she sees it and she talks about the weight uh, of those boxes on her. Like she's feeling it as she's just looking at the boxes and she collapses under that weight. And so this is a depiction of that moment, but also the emptiness around her in that moment because she's surrounded by people, but none of them can take away this grief for her. So there's this inherent loneliness in grief. There's also, um, there's also this, opportunity in that emptiness around her? Like, can you step into this? Can you step in and support the Mamie Till Mobleys that continue to happen? How, like, who are you going to be in this moment? Um, and and then, then there's also just the loneliness of her having to go out on a limb and, 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 and fight against everybody around her, even as she had so much support around her. She had to fight just to get him home. She had to argue people down just to have that open casket funeral, that open casket funeral that, by the way, pulled the curtain back on what was happening to Black folks in the South. Everything she fought for in those days effected a change. And had she listened to any one of them, I'm not sure what would have hmm. become of us. Who would we be? Thank you so much. Um, I wonder how many of those children would you say were children of the, the civil rights movement, um, mm -hmm. those children who risked their safety, um, who children like John Lewis um, mm -hmm. and younger children um, who participated in children's marches and who um, were locked up and held in dungeons in Lee County, Georgia, and um, were murdered it, while praying in, in church basements. Um, thank you, um, T.D. Anderson, for um, helping us to think about um, 
helping us to think about who's the, who those children are, what their fates are, um, and the questions that we need to be asking about that as well. So we have these two images, um, one from Jet Magazine, one from the Chicago Sun-Times. Um, in each case, one of the things that strikes the viewer um, in this, and I used an improper term earlier, I, I called it a series, it's a diptych. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. Um, and so now as we are looking at these two panels, one of the things that strikes us is your utilization of, of color. Could you talk to us about, and, and, and the other interesting thing too, I think is even the, 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 the detailing that you choose um, in the presentation of, of Mamie Till Mobley. So I wonder if you might be able to talk about that um, and why you made the decisions about color that you did. Absolutely. So in both panels, Mrs. Till Mobley is the only uh, figure who is rendered in full color and in full detail. Um, and I, I do this as a means, if you're, if you're able to see color, you understand on a different level that she is then the focus, right? If everything around her is monochrome and she is the one in color, um, that puts a specific focus on her. And I really wanted to center her. I was very intentional about centering her in the story. Uh, also, um, rendering her in color communicates uh, her Blackness. It, it makes very plain that she, this is a Black woman. And all of this is happening to Black people. This is a crime against a Black child and his Black family. He was lynched because he was Black. I won't be very specific about that. And so I, I, I wanted to depict as much as possible um, her Blackness in this. So I wanted to make sure that we understand that this is a Black woman. Uh, her Blackness is important to the story. The crime against her child was committed against him for no other reason than the fact that he was Black. Uh, I also wanna talk about how we really need to listen to Black women. And so I need to make it very, very clear that her Blackness is of import here. Mm -hmm. Her mothering is of import here. And so she is centered um, through color and through composition. Uh, in the first panel where um, Mr. Mobley is behind her, whom she later married after Emmett's death, um, I didn't want to just ignore his grief. This is a father figure to Emmett. And so he, it, I wanted to give some care to his depiction as well. He, in, in the reference photo, he is staring very pointedly at the camera and it's almost as if he's staring at us. And his, his, his gaze in, into the lens of the camera really does pull us in. And I wanted us to be pulled in by his grief as well. Um, in the second panel, everyone else is an outline. Again, there's this ethereal quality to just rendering people in outlines, but also it communicates that emptiness that I talked about earlier, the emptiness of grief, the emptiness of, of loneliness, the emptiness of, of horror, but also the emptiness of opportunity. We can, we can step in, we can, we can be those, those um, figures around her who hold her up. 
and make sure that there are no more Mamie Till Mobleys. Hmm. Thank you so much for that. I'm your host, Tara Lake, and you're listening to a special conversation with artist T.D. Anderson. T.D. Anderson, you have um, shared so many things for us to to think about um, in this moment. And I, I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier in the interview, um, uh, earlier in your response. You said that one of the most important um, decisions that um, uh, Mamie Till Mobley is making in this moment is choosing to, um, in, in presenting her son in his open casket for, for all to see, um, that she was also pulling back the curtain on what was happening to African-Americans in the South. Could you talk about the importance of that in 1955? Um, why was that so critical? Absolutely. Well, we have to understand too that where she was sending her son in Mississippi, there was not widespread access to telephone lines, um, to television. The disparities in um, communication access between North and South were huge. Emmett Till was not the only Emmett Till. This was happening repeatedly and, and there were years of history of of, of lynchings of black folks. And whereas it was understood as de rigueur and, and an accepted and feared reality for black folks in the South, um, black folks in the North who were probably a generation or so away from the great migration and whose um, families didn't really talk about that stuff because they left it behind in the South when they left the South. And also um, white populations and, and the dominant culture probably did not understand the extent to which black folks in the South had been terrorized. So the difference here to me is that this happened to a Chicago boy a Chicago boy whose mom had access to newspapers, to telephones, to um, television, to, uh, to um, politicians. Uh, the folks around her were incredibly well connected. And what that all allowed for was this portal into the realities of Black folks in the South being opened up um, through communication vehicles that never paid attention to them before and never really reported on them before. Um, and that is due in no small part to Jet Magazine and the fact that Black folks were now in positions of publishing their own um, communications around what was of import to our communities. So for me, Emmett Till highlights um, the issue of communication justice. and. We see it happening here in 2020, where if you are in, in, in incredibly rural and, and economically depressed areas, you probably don't have access to um, broadband internet speeds to be able to do your schooling. Uh, in my denomination, we have some rural churches who just, they're not meeting on Zoom because they can't, they don't have the internet access for it. So communication, Access to communication is a justice matter. Uh, there's an there's an there was an incident that's somewhat famous 
um, now that happened in Monroe, North Carolina, which is which was much more rural. Um, just a few years after that, to two little boys who um, were imprisoned because a, a white um, female playmate had kissed them both on the cheek and her mama got mad and got the whole community on them. Well, my father is from Monroe, North Carolina. He never knew anything about that. He was he was a kid at the time. He would have been 10 years old at the time that that happened. And he never knew anything about it. And he was right there. So just this um, communication disparities allow for a shroud to be put over or a pall rather to be to be placed over the horrific realities of oppressed communities and what Mrs. Till Mobley's actions did was remove that pall. It, it, it opened that curtain and, and gave access to information to people um, who had no choice now but to pay attention. They, they preempted I Love Lucy to give the news about Emmett Till's death. And by the way, she received death threats for that, but they couldn't ignore it. So important. So several things. Thank you so much for that. And your discussion of, I think the term that you used uh, not long ago was communication justice and um, the importance of communication justice to communities today, to African-American communities, um, not just in 1955, but these conversations are important, were critically important in, in 2015 in St. Louis, for example, um, and are, are critically important in this moment. Um, so Several things. I, I, I thought that um, it was really important what you talked about as Chicago as an epicenter of the African-American press in the 20th century. And um, those of you who are interested in looking at the, the heritage and, and history of the African-American press, which stretches back in, in continuity um, to the 1800s, uh, and that African-Americans are utilizing newspapers um, in the 1800s and the 1900s in order to, um, to shine a light on the inequities and on the horrific atrocities that African-Americans are experiencing. But what was happening in Chicago as a result of um, Ebony and Jet uh, and Johnson Communications was, was key, and not just, not just uh, Johnson Communications, but also um, the Chicago Defender, um, was critically important. Those, um, those those companies, as, as journalistic companies, were a, a beacon um, for information for African-American communities. They were key even in uh, the movement that we call the Great Migration of African-Americans moving out of the South uh, to places like Chicago, Illinois. Um, and they were um, also key in helping to frame and shape African-Americans' expectations of of gaining full access to citizenship that they um, that they deserved, along with their uh, fellow citizens throughout the United States. And so I think that's so important. And yeah. it's interesting that in 2020, uh, especially because of the shift from traditional media to social media, that these types of conversations around access to communication still need to happen uh, because we find, we continue to find um, that many communities do not have equitable access and that communities that do have equitable access are finding themselves, um, may find themselves subject to other concerns like uh, the, the, um, like the suppression of information by uh, large corporations who now hold so much 
of our communication access uh, in in uh, in in these these. Uh, towers of power, right? Uh, these locations of power, I'll call them towers of power, where, where uh, often communities that are disempowered or who have different viewpoints or different experiences, uh, they find themselves suppressed uh, or censored. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about that, perhaps not in the most public of forums, all through 2020, especially as the pandemic has exposed some of these, uh, some of these rifts. Um, so thank you so much for talking about that. And I, I wanted you uh, to, if you could tell us a bit more about your work uh, in ministry as a person who deals with, um, in, in your work as a teaching elder with the Presbyterian Church USA, that you are dealing with um, anti-racism work, that that's a, a major aspect of what you do, but that you also have found a way um, and it, as is obvious in this beautiful work, that you have found a way to make your work as an artist a part of your work um, as uh, as a person in ministry. And uh, it's, it's very clear. It's such a, a beautiful work. Um, and you do this in a way that is so seamless. I wonder if you could talk about that and your, um, your philosophy of your uh, artistry and your ministry and artistry, if you could talk a bit more about that. Right, thank you. Um, well, if we are to believe the account of scripture and we are to read God's own process of creation, we understand God as an artist anyway. And so I, I see this natural connection between communicating through fine arts, through visual arts, um, and preaching. Crafting sermons for me taps into that artistic process um, that I've been developing for years. Like there was, it, it made complete sense to me, <laughs> my homiletics classes as an artist. Like I was, okay, I was creating something. I was creating a piece of art. I was painting a picture. I was rendering something to make, or, or rather to help people be able to see or understand something a little bit more clearly. Um, and I was going to have to do that having been undergirded by some real scholarship, by paying attention to the world. Um, I could not just throw some strokes on a canvas or some letters on a paper and it just be a thing. I had to bring all of my faculties to it. I had to bring all of myself to it. So I do this work as um, a minister who uh, works primarily in anti-racism advocacy, uh, I, I do this work bringing every single discipline I have to it, understanding that all of it is useful. Um, I, I, I talked about earlier how I have a background in art. So I, I, got a, um, I got my BFA from Virginia Commonwealth University doing graphic design work. Um, and I had an accidental minor in African-American studies, just as um, the electives that I was taking shaped up to be a minor in African-American studies. That then um, availed itself to my study at Howard University School of Divinity when I was um, studying for my master's of divinity, the degree um, that is required of me to be an ordained minister in the Presbyterian Church USA. Um, and so my 
everything that I learned at VCU was coming into play at Howard. Um, everything that I learned at VCU and at Howard was coming into play in my ministry. It all has very organically um, worked together. Um, and I, I can't really say that I take that, that that I've consciously done it. It's just sort of shaped up to be that way. Um, and so I just try to pay attention to what is it that I've seen, what is it that I've learned, how then can that be useful to an undertaking? Like the painting is just a way of getting out grief. It, it was it was a it was a um, exercise in catharsis for me, but. In the process of that catharsis, I could actually say something that would resonate with someone else too. And, and I mean, that's a gift. Great, fantastic. Let's go with that. I wish I could, I wish I could take more credit for <laughs> for um marrying various disciplines. I've just always found that they they made sense to be married and and to play well together to me. Um how how has your, um, because you mentioned in, um, in your essays uh, on your website that there, um, there has been for you an opportunity to be in community with other artists who also um, bring their spirituality and their work in ministry to their work. Um, how has that been instrumental? Has it been instrumental um, in your thinking about these, these ideas and concepts? And uh, where might we learn more about that? I have to say that Louisville's art scene is incredibly robust. I'm still new here, but I'm learning so much about it and so much of what has transpired around our search for justice for Brianna Taylor has involved the arts. Um, Brianna Square, as we call it, um, has been, it, it morphed into this art installation. Um, where you could see in a very powerful way um, what people were trying to say in the demonstrations that were happening in the aftermath. But also, you know, as we're trained in the arts, I gotta say that a lot of our arts education is deeply colonized and comes from a European perspective, but you at the very least understand the role of religious imagery in um, European art specifically, and how the church used that as, um, I guess, devotional tools and as um, catechism. Uh, art has always been used to teach in some way. So I found it, I mean, and, and, and this, this, this piece really is in the style of a religious art motif. So I, I, it, I just found it to be a natural extension, but also, you know, I'm theologically trained in the black liberation tradition and theologically trained in womanist theological thought. And so how I would approach um, any art would, would be from a womanist perspective. It would be from a perspective um, that would censor the experience of the black woman and our wisdom and our practices and our um, communal knowledge. And, and that is the lens through which you're going to hear the story. I'm gonna tell it through a black woman's eyes. The entire community is going to benefit, but the messenger is going to be a black woman. 
the message is going to be decidedly um, related to the experience of Black women. And I think that that's important. That That is probably what's missing from our very colonized um, art education, it, it is the fact that you can have um, artistic and religious and hermeneutical expression come from lenses that aren't of the dominant culture, and they can be transformative for the entire world. I hope that answered the question. Good. And it um, it reminds us to think about um, a Black liberation theological framework, even as we encounter this, encounter your pieces, um, that if we think of the work of James Cohn, crossing the lynching tree. If we think, if we recognize, um, uh, so it, as we can begin to have conversations and you, you invite us to think about and to have conversations about um, Jesus, the crucified as Jesus, the lynched man, as, right. um, as, as we, we have to encounter and have that conversation um, when we look at your pieces and we think about the lynching of of the the child Emmett Till, this young young um, teen boy. Um, thank you so much for that. And is there anything else that we should be thinking about that you want us to uh, consider and think about? I think what you just said touched on something. The whole point of this piece is to lift up narratives and perspectives that too often get marginalized, swept off to the side. And if we aren't understanding Emmett Till as Jesus, as a lynched young man, as someone who was killed for no good reason, as a member of a marginalized, occupied group of people, if we can't see that experience, if we cannot make the connections between someone whom so many of us claim to worship and the very people for whom we march in the streets, and I say this as a minister in a predominantly white denomination, if we don't see the connection between Jesus of Nazareth and Emmett Till, between Jesus of Nazareth and Tamir Rice, between Jesus of Naz Nazareth and Tatiana Jefferson, between Jesus of Nazareth and George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Trayvon Martin, if we can't see that connection, we are missing a huge chunk of the message that had been entrusted to us some couple of millennia ago. What we actually worship in the church too often is empire. And what we need to lift is the story of an occupied, oppressed, repressed carpenter teacher who threatened the empire, and that's the reason he was killed. It wasn't just about you and your little sins. He was killed because of what threat he presented. That needs to be, that needs to be made plain. 
Ladies and gentlemen, we have had a wonderful conversation with T.D. Anderson, artist, reverend, and teaching elder in the Presbyterian Church USA. I haven't another question. Uh, thank you so much uh, for what you have taken the time to share with us today. Those who are interested in learning more about T.D. Anderson can check out her website at www tdandersonart.com. And is there anywhere else we might go to learn more about you and your work in the various arenas uh, in which you find yourself? I do my ministry within the Presbyterian Mission Agency, um, which is an agency at the Presbyterian Church USA. And we have a number of resources available at peaceusa.org, at facingracism.org um, that talk about the need to do this work from a faith perspective. Um, so it's for church folks, but I, I think it really has pertinence to all of us. Thank you so much, T.D. Anderson, and all the best to you. Thank you so much for this uh, work that you've shared with us, and uh, we just wish you all the best. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with T.D. Anderson about her work, Pieta, Woman, Behold Your Son, Behold Your Mother. More information about Anderson's artwork is available at tdandersonart.com. That's Anderson with an O. Anderson has written a number of essays at solascriptura.com, spelled S. O-U-L-A-S-C-R-I-P-T-U-R-A dot com. If you're interested in learning more about the Monroe, North Carolina kissing case, a good resource is NAACP activist Robert F. Williams' 1962 book, Negroes with Guns, and the 2004 documentary by the same name. And that brings my interview with the dynamic T.D. Anderson to a close. Anderson is one of a selection of inspiring women I'm excited to present in this eight-episode season. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the show. Please reach out at taralakeshow.com. That's taralakeshow.com. I'm your host, Tara Lake. Thank you so much for listening to The Tara Lake Show.